0: It's always humbling in a moment like this when we celebrate a baptism and these glorious promises of God to simultaneously know, even as I prayed and hoped for Genevieve, as I hope for us, that we'll know the Lord, grow in the Lord, that His presence will be continually with us. We, we also know this for Genevieve and for all of us, that life is going to be full of challenges. It's going to be full of difficulties. We're aware of that. We want her to have the grace that is needed to bear those, even as we need the grace in order to bear those. There's challenges, there's sufferings, even should God will persecutions, attacks upon our very persons and community for naming the name of Christ and being one of his followers. That's typical and ordinary Christianity in history. Persecution. We are an anomaly. To gather in a place like this with freedom to be able to declare the gospel and to do so without fear of our life or restraint is an anomaly. It's a blessed anomaly, but it's an anomaly nonetheless. And something, as we look at Daniel chapter 11, we will see the people of God throughout history, Israel specifically in this passage, faced terrible persecution for their commitment to follow their God, Yahweh. And we want to pay attention to this passage. As difficult as this passage is, as challenging as it is, we believe that the Lord has something really important to tell us. So I'm going to ask you now to dial in with me Have your Bibles open or your bulletins open to the space that we are at right now. Verse 20 of Daniel chapter 11. We began this reading earlier in our service. This is a long passage. So let's consider together verse 20 through verse 45 here in God's Word. Then shall arise in his place another king is arising. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an extractor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. And in his place shall arise a contemptible person, another ruler, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the Prince of the Covenant. And from the time and that an alliance is made him with him he shall act deceitfully. He shall become strong with a small people. And without warning he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his mothers nor excuse me, nor his fathers' fathers have done, scattering among the plunder, spoil and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for plot shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil." They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at that time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. "...for ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged, and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action." And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. And when they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined and purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills, He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every good and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his father did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasuries of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. He shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him." The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is your word. And we receive it as your word. Which means that it is for profit. It means that it is for blessing. It means that it is for instruction. That it is for rebuke and correction. That it is for training in righteousness. And that you have a reason to equip us for every good work from this particular word. We would ask now in the brief moments that we have together that you would expand our minds and our hearts and heighten our attentions that by the work of the Spirit in the Word of God, we might indeed have an encounter with you, the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you could tell, maybe even just then from my prayer, I feel it important to remind us that all Scripture is profitable. Certain moments we really need to be reminded of that. This is one of those moments, as I was somewhere in verse 33 to 45 and your attention totally drifted and you were wondering what in the world of profit is going to possibly come out of this text no I'm not reading your mind but I am of what it was that went on through our heads and I can tell you for some of us in this room that happened and for others of us you're not alone that did happen and the realization is there are some passages of scripture that are difficult is that right ever find the scripture difficult it's okay, this is a safe community. Yes, okay. I find the scripture difficult, to be quite honest. It's kind of my day job, and I still find it difficult. You know, I have a master's of divinity. That sounds so, like, smart. When I read Daniel 11, I, don't, I feel like I'm a master of nothing. Like nothing. I read it on humbled by this text. There's so much going on in this text. There's no way I could possibly understand everything that's going on in this text. I'm humbled by it. That's part of what the Scripture is supposed to do. It's supposed to humble us. And in fact, as it humbles us and as we realize, well, wait, this is not just the sweet, savory, easy, accessible sections of Scripture, but all Scripture, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training, and righteous that the man of God might be equipped, able to carry out every good work. That's the goal of all scripture. Paul also says this in Romans fifteen four. listen to this. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Speaking of the Old Testament, that's what Paul is talking of here in Romans 15. And here's what he says comes through that. So that through the endurance taught in the scripture, seeing the endurance that's taught in the scripture and the encouragement that they provide the study of the Old Testament, we might have hope. That's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 15. Now, I think that's actually God's design in Daniel chapter 11. He wants us to profit with encouragement and endurance that we might have hope. Okay, And that's really important because it takes some stamina just to get through Daniel 11. There's a test on the front end of just staying alive to the Word as you're reading it. But Daniel 11 is actually talking about staying alive in the real fight of faith, the difficulty of the fight of faith, that the fact of the matter is we are in the midst of warfare all of the time. We talked about this in Daniel 10 last week, if you were with us, where Daniel through the revelation of a divine being who showed up on the scene is now in Daniel chapter 11 recounting for him the vision that he needs to see about the future and it's a very distant future from the position that Daniel is in as he's receiving this vision but it's pertinent to his concerns and it's pertinent to his worries for the people of Israel the people of Israel have returned to the land of promise the land of Canaan they have been in exile for over 70 years in Babylon. They've gone back now, and under the rule of Zerubbabel, they have built the wall of the city of Jerusalem back, and they have now begun, just, just started in on the work of rebuilding the temple when all the wheels kind of fall off. And the various nations around Israel begin to bicker and complain and get frustrated that Israel won't partner with them in this work. And Israel's saying, no, this is a work that we're called to specifically. And they appeal to Cyrus back in Persia who gave them their freedom. And he says, listen, if you do your history, you'll find out these people of Israel, when they have a temple and they're a power, they're a thorn in all of our sides, and their God's really with them. And you don't want this to happen, and sure enough, they've caused a halt to the building of the temple and Daniel cries out to the Lord on behalf of the people. And that's when this divine being shows up in Daniel 10 who comes on the behalf of Daniel's prayers and in Daniel 11 he says, he says, I want to peel back the curtain of history for you and I want you to see where things are going. And what he gives him is what we see here in Daniel chapter 11 and we'll see the remnants of this spill over into Daniel chapter 12 as well. Now, what's interesting about this particular section uh, of Scripture is that it is um, very different from the way that we would typically approach uh, many of the texts that have to do with history being spoken in the Old Testament. Because this text is not about something that's in the past. It's really prophetic about something that's going to happen in the future. But from our vantage point, it's history. So much of what has happened here in Daniel 11 that we're going to unpack here in just a second is actually something that's already taken place. So from our vantage point, it's history. But from the vantage point of Daniel, when he's receiving it, it's future. It's actually prophecy. Now, what is prophecy? It's important for us to wrap our heads around that. Well, prophecy we tend to think of is as foretelling the future. God's prophets tell us what's going to happen down the pipe. And that is a part of what prophecy is. But prophecy includes not just foretelling of the future, it also includes forthtelling of the truth. In fact, the truth about that scripture. That's what we actually have in this text. It means that God is not simply saying, here's what's going to happen in the future. God is saying, here's how you ought to interpret what's going to happen in the future. Here's how you ought to view what's going to happen in the future. I love this about our God. He doesn't leave history up for interpretation. He actually says, here are the things that are going to happen and here's how you ought to think about it. Here's how you ought to view it. Here's what's really happening. Rather than you getting all shaken up inside and so concerned about what's going on, I want you to know I have an interpretation of history that's in line with my will that's been from before the foundation of the world that I have sovereignly scripted and unfolding by the power of my will. He says, "I want you to see this, Daniel, as I show you what's going to happen in the future. I want you to also see how I'm interpreting it and how I understand it." Now what's interesting about this, and we would expect this to be the case, that God's interpretation of history is often very different than our own. If we were to highlight certain things in history, we'd say, "Oh, that's really, that's really important. you know the, the Battle of Waterloo. You know, that's a really important battle and the, the Civil War, and that's really important to our national history, and we would note these things throughout history, and go, oh, the Crusades, and the rise of the Roman Empire, and we look at all of these various things throughout history, and we would note these are really critical, and it's not that they aren't critical, it's just when you begin to get God's view of history, he actually focuses in upon different things. Let me me give you a, a, for instance, in this particular text, in verse 2, we're told that a series of kings Are going to arise in Persia. Actually, there's going to be three of them. And they're going to be after King Cyrus, who's right now on the throne during Daniel's period. And then there's going to be a fourth king that's going to rise up after those three kings, and he's going to be distinguished by his wealth and his riches. And he's going to get the big head, and he's going to go try to attack Greece. And as he goes to try to attack Greece, he's going to fail. And what we're going to see is Greece is going to rise up as a world power. This is noted in verse 3. And it's noted by this little phrase. A mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Now, some of you, if you were with us in Daniel chapter 8, you might remember that some of this history was actually spoken to in Daniel chapter 8. And there was a great king at the advent of the Greek empire who did as he wills, who had great dominion and was a tremendous world power. His name is Alexander the Great. Now, in this context, in Daniel chapter 11, this vision is saying, hey, down the road, there's going to be this ruler that rises up out of Greece. He's going to have this great dominion. And he mentions it here in verses 2 and 3. Now, what's interesting about this is that after those two verses, from verse 5 to verse 19, of the text that's before us, there's a series of kings from the north and the south that are constantly invading each other and warring with each other and and just causing all kinds of havoc. Those two kings that are being spoken of in the north and the south are a part of the division of the Greek Empire after the time of Alexander the Great. Some of you know that Alexander the Great, after he died, his children were assassinated. He had no blood relative that came and occupied the throne. And the, the sphere of his domain was so great that it wind up being divided up into four sections. In fact, the way it's referred to here in the vision is the four winds of heaven. From the north and the south and the east and the west, the kingdom was divided up and it was given to four of his generals. Two of his generals, one was Seleucid, which winds up being the Seleucid kingdom of the north in, in the third century, is that northern kingdom that's being described here in the breakdown of Greece. Of Greece. And then one was Ptolemy, down in Egypt, was also a part of the Greek Roman Empire. He was divided up down in the south. Those two kings, the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid kingdoms, are being described in verses 5 to verses 19 of our text. And we actually have eight generations of those kings warring back and forth with one another between the north and the south for over 300 years. Verses 5 to 19 cover 300 years of history. Okay, time out. You're with me, right? You're with me. So we've got the Seleucid kingdom, and we've got the Ptolemaic kingdom, the north and the south. Now, if I had a map of the Middle East, which some of you can find in the maps at the back of your Bible, a little picture of the Middle East that's there. If if you think of modern-day Syria, that's essentially where the northern um, Seleucid kingdom was. And the Egyptian southern kingdom, the Ptolemaic kingdom, was here in Egypt. So Egypt is here, and Syria is here. Now there's a little sliver of land kind of right here by the Mediterranean. you have any idea what might be there? Israel. Now, if these two countries, in the north and the south, are constantly warring and invading each other, what's happening to Israel? They're constantly caught in the crossfire kind of sounds like today's news. right? So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Okay, It's that sort of situation. Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom, and Israel becomes, as it were, the traipsing grounds for these two nations to constantly be at war. And from time to time, Israel gets involved in their conflicts as well. Well, they actually really get involved at one point. And and that's actually what most of this is actually uh, referring to because beginning in verse 20, what we begin to see is there is one particular king who arises. His name is um, Antiochus IV or Antiochus. Antiochus IV, sometimes known as Antiochus Epiphanes. We begin to describe him in verse 20. And from verse 20 to verse 35, another 15 verses, 15 to 20, then 20 to 35, is only five years of history. So the first 19 or 300 years... And then it slows way down in verse 20 to 35, and we only have five years of history, and it centers around one guy, this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, why is he important? Well, he's important because as he tried to make his way to Egypt from the northern kingdom of Seleucid to the Ptolemaic kingdom down here, he, we're told in verse 29, got stopped. He was opposed by what's called the ships of Kittim in this text. Now, that may not ring any bells for any of you, but for some of you who are historians know that Kittim was one of the early descriptors of the Roman Empire. We're talking about a section of the increase of the Roman Empire, so now Rome is entering the picture at this point. We're looking about 168 BC, it's being described. And as Rome begins to enter the picture and these ships of Kittim keep him out, he tries to go to war with them and he's not successful. And this Antiochus Epiphanes decides, enraged that he wasn't able to get down to Egypt to conduct his battle, he turns his anger towards Jerusalem. Now, if you think about it, that's actually kind of right where he was. He's going through the Mediterranean trying to get down to Egypt. He's right there to his east is Israel. And he doesn't even go back home he just decides we've got all of our army we've got everything that we want I've decided I'm gonna fight a battle and he turns his attention to Jerusalem and sure enough this becomes what's known as the abomination of desolation that's described here in Daniel chapter 11 we read about it here in verses 31 to 35 of the text verses 29 all the way to verse 30 um, really introduce us to um, the, the life and military exploits a bit of this man named Antiochus Epiphanies, but then in verse 31, we start seeing exactly what happens when he enters Jerusalem. Okay? Now, let me just pause right there before we look at those verses. Okay? A lot of history, right? Okay. Verses 2 and 3 of this text deal with a man called Alexander the Great. See, a pretty big deal? He's a huge deal. Okay? If you've done any history and um, ancient history at all with re- regarding Persia, Greek, and, and Rome, he is, he'll take up pages and chapters in a secular history book. But how much time does he get in the text of Daniel 11? Two verses. Now, everybody knows that the Seleucid kingdom, which is just a part of the division of Greece, and the Ptolemaic kingdom here in Egypt are really small fries. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Alexander's the big cheese. These guys are just a division of what it is that he's done. But how, many, how, many, how much of this chapter is devoted to them? All of it. Almost all of it. Depending on how you view verses 36 and following. Almost all of the chapter. Now why is that important? It's important because it gives us God's view of history the things that we often think are so critical in history and what secular historians spend a tremendous amount of time unpacking and dealing with in the writing of their histories is becomes a little footnote for the vision here in Daniel chapter 11 but for the things that are connected to redemptive history though looking very small in the eyes of the world very small fry in terms of their king and kingdoms these are the things that God spends a lot of time spilling ink on and he wants us to know about. Now let me put this in perspective. God's writing a history of the first 15 years of the 21st century. According to the kind of weight and emphasis that we're seeing God give in Daniel chapter 11, He'll spend a good half verse on America, and He'll wax on about South Sudan and China and Nepal and India. Why? Because the gospel's growing like wildfire there. The front end of the kingdom is being pressed there. Revivals are going on there. Persecutions and attacks for the faith are happening there. W- what is that dialing us into? It's dialing us into what really is important of looking, as we talked about last week, to the battle underneath the battle and looking to the unseen rather than the seen to determine actually what's really important. So Daniel 11 kind of displays that for us on the page. All of these many generations of kings and you can go through it through these two empires and all of this fight around Israel that historians spend very little on is the dominant focus of Daniel 11. And what we spend so much time on and think about gets a footnote in Daniel chapter 11 and it's an instruction to us that sometimes the things that we think are so important are not the front end of the battle where the kingdom of God is going some of the things that are are hitting the headlines are not the things that are making redemptive history this is God teaching us what's important now to that end I want to look with you in verses 31 to 35 in the few minutes that we have left to simply talk with you about the response of the people of Israel, their experience of persecution and the response of the people of Israel to the attacks that Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greek uh, Seleucid Kingdom brings to bear upon them. And I want to start in verse 31. I want to unpack this a little bit for you. And you'll see now why we couldn't do this with the whole chapter. We're just going to take a little glimpse. And this is the high point. Um, This is the high point of this particular history. Verse 31 we, it reads this way, forces from him, that's Antiochus that's being spoken of there, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offerings. Now what is being described here is when Antiochus came in and to destroy Jerusalem, he saw it, and you can look at this with Josephus, who's a wonderful Jewish historian who collaborates pretty deeply with Daniel chapter 11, When you see him take control of Jerusalem, he destroys the temple, he destroys the altar, he takes away the burnt offerings, he removes the Sabbath day, he strictly forbids circumcision. Everything that is connected to distinguishing the people of God is removed. That's really important. The Roman Empire is going to do something different. They're going to learn from how Greece messed up about some of these things. They're going to absorb religious spheres a lot more but Greek religious spheres often went in a militarily enforced inculturization now what happened with that is the same thing that happened at the beginning of Daniel 1 do you remember when Daniel and his the elites from Israel after they were brought into exile were taken into Nebuchadnezzar's court Nebuchadnezzar did several things he changed their name he made them go through a Babylonian education he put them at his table made them eat his food He he robed them in clothes that were of Babylonian um, style and quality. What was he doing? He was trying to do his very best to shake out all of the Israelite inside of them. And he was going to do his very best to clothe them and to forge them as those who would be the elite among the Babylonians. In a similar fashion, Antiochus is doing the same thing here. It's not as subtle as Nebuchadnezzar. It's militarily enforced. But he is seeking to remove everything that makes the people of God distinctive. Now, let me tell you, that's one of the the tactics of the evil one constantly within culture. Is that we are to be a people who are in the world but not of the world. And oftentimes we become a people who are of the world and not in the world. We are a people who are creating a subculture that looks like the world that's over here, but it's actually not actively and faithfully engaging with the world as God has given it to us even within our generation and what we wind up seeing is there's a slide in the church towards actually looking like the world where they're indistinguishable where we are indistinguishable from an unbeliever or a believer they look the same they talk the same their priorities are the same and what happens is the witness for Christ is truncated it's lost the witness for our followership with regards to God is mitigated against Because there is to be a distinctiveness of the people of God. Now when you hear me say that, some of us think, yeah, we should dress different or have a secret handshake or have something that's going to be externally marking us so that we will be different. No, that's not actually the way the Bible would put it. The Bible would put it that we should be holy, righteous, godly. It's less about a set of activities, though it will incorporate that, like a Lord's Day in reading the Bible in prayer, but it's less about the set of activities and it's more about doing everything in life differently because the very aroma of Christ exudes from you the aroma of life to those who are living and an aroma of death to those who are dying. And it, though, it simultaneously is attractional to those who are drawn to Christ and it's repulsive to those who hate it and so the simultaneously Christians generally in history are not somewhere in a happy medium where we, yeah, we kind of like them or we kind of don't like them. We either fully embrace them or identify with them or we want them all killed. There's not been a lot of middle ground. If there's a lot of middle ground, it means that we're actually not much of a threat. There's not enough of a difference for it to matter. And in this particular context, we actually see Antiochus forcing this kind of military enculturization so that they will lose the distinctiveness of the people of God. Now, how, do, how does this holiness, how does this mark of Christ in our context, how does this really begin to reveal itself and to show itself? Well, let's continue in this passage. It says, And they, speaking of Antiochus, shall set up the abomination which makes desolation. Now, this desolation is the destruction of the altar, the setting up of a new altar to the god Zeus, who was the lead god of the Greeks, who was the lead god of Mount Olympus, and so here is, this God has been set up a new altar, and now new sacrifices are going to be placed upon that altar. And guess what the sacrifices are? Pigs, right? Unclean animals. And so he's forcing the people of God to do profane things, to, to enter into idolatry. And the, and the people of God, many of them, said no, and many of them said, okay. Kind of sounds familiar. Uh, many of them said no and many of them said okay, Okay. I guess we'll go along with it and and involve themselves in the sacrilege of the taking away of the things which were sacred and were set apart and marked by God to distinguish the people of God. Now they have sold the farm as it were spiritually speaking and they are now enrolling themselves as a Greek person indistinguishable um, from the mark of what they are to be as the people of God Israel. Now this is what's happening and here's what it really teaches us in verses 32 and 33, we see this division between the people. He shall seduce with flattery those who will violate the covenant. Those who are more than willing to just not go along with what God says, he will seduce them by flattery. If you know the history of Antiochus, you know he, he offered empty promises, he gave goods and services to kind of woo you into his camp. But, notice this, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. That's how they're described. But the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. Now, let let me tell you something. This is what happens. And it's going to happen sooner or later in our context. Because it's just the way it is. Okay? It doesn't matter what era in church history we're in. The true people of God are revealed when persecution comes knocking on the door. That's just what happens. The true people of God are revealed when persecution comes knocking on the door. That's exactly what we see in this context. Two parties begin to to reveal themselves. Those who went out from us, as the writer of Hebrews says, because they were never a part of us. They left us because they were never spiritually really a part of us. They said things with their lips, but their heart was far from me. These are people who left the faith, violated the covenant, gave themselves over to the world, and there were those who knew their God truly knew him resisted or stood firm and took action when we are persecuted we either give up our commitment to Christ or we offer up our life to him we either give up as it were to our Christianity or we give towards our Christian commitment one or the other The spirit is either forged within us or it falters. And in that moment becomes a kind of fish or cut bait moment in the spiritual life. And many of us have projections and conjections about what it is we think we'll do in moments like that. Um, And uh, one of the great ways to test that is how you're doing in little moments now. When you're slightly embarrassed by your faith when a neighbor makes fun of you. Or you're shy about speaking of Christ when you know the person next to you doesn't love him and is against him. What is your inclination? Is it always cower or is it to move forward? Is there courage there or is there not? That's one of, that's one of the questions that actually this text is, is raising because in those moments, something gets revealed. Something comes to the surface. The, the, the mushy middle of what we see in American Christianity, which is people who can be tangentially connected to the church and pretty much live like the world, will go away when persecution arises. It'll just happen. And it's just the way it works. And it's, it's God's way, as we see in this text, of purifying His church. It's His way of bringing to the, to the top, as it were, the cream. Those who are truly with Him those who are truly uh, committed to him. And we're told that these are people who take a firm stand and they take action. And one such family in the context of Daniel chapter 11 and the history that unfolds appears in 167 B.C. as the Hasmonean family. Now that name probably doesn't ring a bell to many of you, but it will in a second. This was a family who was called upon by Antiochus and his military regime to worship the god of Zeus and to sacrifice, a pig on the altar, and Mattathias, who was the head of the household, of the Hasmonean family, refused to do so, putting himself and his five sons and his wife, his life in jeopardy by resisting. He, in that moment, resisted actually militarily. He actually uh, went to war in that moment with those who were seeking to resist him and then went into hiding, and he began to organize a militia for the purposes of taking back the temple. Now, he was killed ultimately in this attempt. He never actually saw this happen, but one of his sons, in fact, his third son named Judas, some of you know him as Judas Maccabeus, was successful in leading a revolt in 164 BC where he overtook the Temple Mount again, tore down the statue of the idol of Zeus, tore down the altar, and began to retake. Jerusalem. And this is what we celebrate and what we should celebrate whether in formal or informal ways we should note it, we should appreciate its history the celebration of Hanukkah. The reason why we should is because it's a part of our history. It's a part of biblical history. That's what Daniel 11 is actually speaking to the redemption of the people of Israel in that moment in time right here in this particular context. And so you get the picture that here is God hundreds of years removed from this circumstance telling Daniel there's going to come a time where it's going to get worse than you think it's going to be. And in that moment, I'm going to rise up. There's something going to happen. A resistance is going to happen. And Antiochus is going to be overtaken. And a redemption is going to be won. But let me tell you, it wasn't easy. The estimates are there are about 80,000 Israelites who died under Antiochus Epiphanes' rule because they resisted. Worshipping Zeus and sacrificing on that altar. And what that means is that resistance and taking action and commitment to follow Christ won't immediately look like earthly victory. And it actually will cost most their lives before it's victorious. That's really what this history is saying. That there was a victory but on the heels of 80,000 people who died and faithfully resisted and who kept covenant with the Lord. And of course, this should come as no surprise because Jesus in Luke chapter nine says, nothing short of this. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Jesus says this is the very message of the kingdom, the very pathway through which the kingdom is advanced. It's advanced through the blood of God's people. Now that may be just the most haunting and horrifying thought right now for you in this room, but let me tell you why that should not surprise you. The advent of the kingdom of God and its power and coming started with a man who was not a man, who was God, and man fully on the cross, giving his life utterly away for the salvation of the world. That man is our Savior. He is our Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. He has promised that if we follow him, our life will resemble the life that he lived. He didn't pull punches about that. He he didn't he didn't say it's going to be on flowery beds of ease that we're going to be taking it. He said this will look like that and it's okay because what happened was that he took our greatest enemy death and he actually made it a tool in his back pocket. You see Death is something that scares us to death. Like, most of us are far living. Like, it's pretty universal. If we were to take a poll in here, most would be like, yeah, I'm for sticking around. I mean, like, that's normally kind of the impulse of our hearts, okay? Well, God thinks in terms of eternity and in terms of the kingdom and in spiritual terms as well. And the realization is when you die, you don't die. Not from God's perspective. You actually pass from life into greater life. You pass from less sanctification and holiness into more sanctification and holiness. This is why the Apostle Paul says, to live as Christ and to die is what? Gain. That's not a joke. Like, he's not kidding about that. He really means it. He means that when you die here, There is something powerful that takes place that ushers you into a life dimension that is of so much greater consequence than we can imagine here that it leaves behind your blood in the ground, leaves behind roots for the seed of the gospel to spring forth in more followers of Christ. That's amazing. That's what it means. He actually has decided to advance his kingdom through our persecution, suffering, and death. how it works. And he says, I want you to know the reason why I can do that is because I have death in my back pocket. I broke forth from the grave on the third day. I was resurrected. Your greatest enemy is no longer an enemy. You, You can mock him. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? You have nothing on us anymore. If I run towards the sword, the flames, the captivity and the plunder, all of which are described here, you promise that the gates of hell won't prevail against it and your kingdom will advance right within its precincts. And there is nothing that the evil one can do about it. do you feel the steeliness of that resolve? What that is is the gospel power of the Spirit and it is in that where transformation growth and the advance of the kingdom takes place and as C.T. Studd said we need people who are made of the stuff of martyrs that's what we need we don't need people playing at the faith we need people who on the front end wrote their death certificate to follow Jesus now that sounds gruesome to some of us. That's what this text is telling us. I didn't come, scratch any ears. I came to tell you what Jesus said, what Daniel said. And this is why the missionaries, when they took off for Africa in the last century, they did so taking their coffin with them. Packing their supplies in their coffin. They didn't expect to come home. They expected to go home. That's really different. That is a fundamental different way of viewing the world. And it's at the very core of what it means to be a believer. Someone who has now been so released and is so free from the entanglements of this world that we are not walking through life playing it safe. Brainstorming about life preservation. We are laying it on the line for the Lord Jesus. And we are restful in the fact that if it's our blood that will be shed, we will count it worthy to suffer in the manner that's similar to Christ. That's what's being said here. Now the reason we can have such tremendous joy in this is the fact that Jesus did for the joy that was set before him. This is not, I don't want you to think, this is not you grunting it out. This is you unreservedly with joy saying yes to the call of Christ. Saying, if God would count me worthy, I I would be astonished. You know, when Jesus gathered around the table with his disciples the night that he was betrayed, and he broke that bread and he poured that wine, He stared into the face of disciples who probably didn't know all that they were about to experience. But did you know in a matter of a few years, all of them would die for the sake of Christ? Every single one of them. John would be exiled on the island of Patmos, and he would write Revelation, and as far as we know, he would die there upon that island. They'd all give their life for Christ. They didn't always feel strong to do that. But when the moment of persecution came, they knew their God. They knew their Savior. They knew their Lord. They stood fast. And they took action. And they went home to be with Jesus. And the blood that fell on the ground, their blood, became the seed of the gospel. And you and I our living testimony that God has kept his promises. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we would ask that as sobering as this message is, that we do not shake it off quickly, but that you, by the Holy Spirit, impress it now upon our minds in a way that is inescapable, so that we might ask you, plead with you, fast and pray that we would be a people in that moment who know their God, who stand fast, and who take action. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.